The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Once more, we're studying Luke's gospel, looking in Luke chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 37 to 42, reminding you this is a rather short condensation of material from the Sermon on the Mount, which fills three entire chapters in Matthew. Luke does not dwell on that teaching of Jesus in all its detail. For that reason, we often don't speak about the Sermon on the Mount from Luke because the fuller edition is in Matthew 5 through 7. But listen to the theme and how it's developed here in this passage, verses 37 to 42 of Luke 6. Hear God's Word. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? When you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is... God's inspired word. I wonder if there's a a church of its small size anywhere else in America that is known as well, not just in our nation, but even internationally, as well as the Westboro Baptist Church of Topeka, Kansas. It's a rather small church. I understand there's uh, fewer than 75 members of that congregation. It's pastored by a man named Fred Phelps. And you may well know why that particular church has become famous in recent days. It's more infamous than famous. As the church has led protests around our nation on a number of subjects or causes, but their favorite cause and the one occasioning the most vehement demonstrations is for them to denounce the widespread tolerance of homosexuality in America. Now, at the root of the matter, we can agree with the Westboro Baptist Church that God in His Word does indeed say that homosexual practice is a sin. It is not a blessed thing in the life of any believer. It is something that needs repentance. Look no farther than Romans 1 if you doubt that. And so, in principle, these folks are right about something biblical. However, I think you know that Westboro Baptist picketers 
go way beyond anywhere that you or I would want to go. In making the rather illogical conclusion that God is allowing American soldiers to be killed in greater numbers in our wars as a direct judgment upon America's free and permissive attitude toward homosexuality. We don't know how they reach that conclusion, but they show up, as you know, with signs at the funerals of our military people waving a sign that says, God hates fags, and insulting families and creating great offense. Well, I believe these people from Kansas, I hope they're eligible to be my brothers and sisters in Christ. I certainly know that they're deeply mistaken in some of their behavior. And that behavior is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here in Luke chapter 6. Perhaps another example would be drawn from the front pages if you think of Pastor Terry Jones in Florida who threatened to burn a Koran last fall on September 11th on the anniversary. Many people appealed to him not to do that for the repercussions that would come from it, and it seems that they got through to him because he didn't do it. But then on March 20th of this year, after members of his church staged a mock trial for the religion of Islam that found that religion wanting of God's approval, the Koran was burned. And you may know, too, that in direct reprisal some days later in Afghanistan, Muslims attacked a United Nations facility and killed 12 people there. The critics of organized Christianity have a field day when they want to mock buffoonish, obtuse behavior by persons who claim to be disciples of Jesus when the actions have nothing to do with the spirit of true Christian discipleship. Now, as Christians, we're going to encounter a lot of things in this world that we disagree with, that God's Word disagrees with, and that God Himself is dismayed over, and we must identify and do what the Scripture says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. We must not be blind about what is wrong. We must not extend that foolish kind of tolerance that says, oh, well, that's all right. If that's your thing, go do it. That's not of God. But last week, we were considering this same chapter, and we saw that Jesus said that Christians have a unique way of reacting to people who would be called their enemies. They react to an enemy with love. And now we are similarly being challenged by our Savior to resist ungodly causes and do so in a unique manner that does not suggests that we be soft on the issues where Scripture has spoken, but paradoxically, we will model God's mercy and grace to people who may be caught up in ways greatly displeasing to the Lord and contrary to His Word. We show here that Jesus has deep concern for His disciples when we might be right about our biblical principles but 100% wrong in tactics and the treatment of people involved in unbiblical behaviors. Now, first of all, we need to dwell on this, and that I'll call the first point the wrong notion that is so prevalent about judge not lest you be judged. 
You know, you learn memory verses in Sunday school, but I'll guarantee you that many, many of the people in America who know this verse have never been to Sunday school. If people don't know any other Bible verse, it seems they know that Christians have heard their Savior say, judge not, right, lest you be judged. The verse is quoted everywhere, and it's misinterpreted and misused everywhere. For instance, there may be a situation where homosexual sin, for example, is being talked about, and, and the, the idea that that is not approved by God and so on, or that abortion is the taking of a human life, or something along that line, and somebody is going to pipe up with this. Doesn't your Bible say, judge not? What right do you have to tell anyone else what is right or wrong, or to imply that your behavior is superior to mine? Now, if you would use logic at all, and of course the problem is that logic has nearly disappeared in our world today, but if people would use logic and think for a moment, they would think how foolish that statement is that they've made. We live in an era of moral relativism, and they have fastened upon this statement that Jesus said, do not judge, to imply that what he meant is something like this, as if he was saying, why, there are no absolutes. Everyone's a judge unto himself. Do whatever you want, whatever's right in your eyes. Just be true to yourself. Don't let anyone's criticism discourage you. That's what's implied, that there really is no firm truth. And, and do you see where if you take that logically out very far, what, it, what happens? There's no Ten Commandments because no one has a right to call anything a commandment. There are no lines of behavior that can be called good or evil, right or wrong. And no one can subject your thinking or your behavior to any kind of a test. Now, this is the way people think, judge not, ought to be used. And they use it against us and throw it at us all the time. There are, of course, in Scripture, many places that call on us to condemn sin, to be wise and discerning about it. Luke 6.43, right after this, I didn't go on and read it, and I'm not dealing with this part, but if you would look there, it's asking you to look at people's lives and see what kind of fruit comes from their life. That's an act of discernment or judgment. Or you could go to a text like John 7.24 that says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a righteous judgment. Or 1 Corinthians 6.3 where believers are told, why don't go to the secular judges to, to fix disputes that are happening within the church? You have the ability, you Christians, to judge your own disputes. Or Matthew 10.16 where Jesus says towards people in the world, you need to be as shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. And it's pointed out to me that in the equivalent passage in Matthew 7, go look that up if you want, right after this judge not and condemn not and so on, comes the place where Jesus says, don't throw your pearls before pigs. Now that takes some interpreting, but he's judging that there are some people who will never appropriately be able to comprehend your truth, your witness, your gospel, and you ought not to press it forward before them. That's making a judgment. Now, judgments are demanded in all situations in life. Teachers right now are wrapping up semesters if they've not already, and they have judged their students and given them grades. Managers in companies 
Evaluate the performance of their employees. Parents make judgments as to what behavior is appropriate at what stage of a child's life. Judges render verdicts in courts of law. Judging and discerning has to go on in any society. We have to be able to draw moral lines, and that involves looking at other people and what they're doing and weighing them and being wise about them. So I'm just trying to say, first of all, that judge not cannot possibly mean never commit an act of discernment or judgment. It means something else. Let's say what it does mean in the second place, and we'll go on with this verse, and and it becomes more clear as you read the rest of the verse. What it does mean is this. We are called to pursue Christ-like discerning grace with other people. We are called to pursue Christ-like discerning grace with other people. It helps so much if you just would read the sentence after, do not judge and you'll not be judged. It says, do not condemn and you'll not be condemned. You see, now it's, it's sharper. It's, it's in clearer focus. Condemning is something at a whole different level than just making a discerning decision or a wise piece of understanding. Condemnation takes a person and consigns that person based on behavior to the scrap heap. It judges motives, not just behavior. It says, I see what this person is doing, and this person could not possibly be godly or of value. I push them away. I'm done with them. And Jesus says, don't do that. The opposite of what we would call condemnation or judgmentalism and the way of Christ is mercy and open mind, giving the benefit of the doubt being forgiving and merciful to people even before they might ask us for it. And what occasions us to do that? Well, it ought to be that our own great realization of the debt we've been forgiven by God holds in check that animosity, that critical spirit that goes against people so quickly and gets angry and, and you know, just throws people away with disparaging criticism. People need room in their lives to grow towards repentance and to learn the wrong of their ways. And they don't always learn it in an instant. And guess what? You didn't either. It took time probably for God to get a hold of you and show you his way and have you bow before Christ. You might be dealing with another person who's just beginning to move in that direction. And as you look at them right now, they don't look very godly. They don't look like a Christian disciple. What they need, perhaps, is for you not to pronounce a final sentence on them or cast them away based on their current condition, but rather to show them the mercy of Christ. There's a great vocabulary word I love, and young people Elementary students learn a vocabulary word today. The word is magnanimous. It comes from Latin, magnus for large. Magnanimous means a large spirit, a great soul, literally. It implies loftiness or or generosity in your thinking so that you think the best of people. You give people the room they need the encouragement they need, perhaps, to turn to God. Now, maybe someone's thinking, and and I'll anticipate that thinking, that you say, well, wait a minute. Jesus is saying, 
don't judge, don't condemn. Isn't there a whole chapter or so in his teachings, especially in Matthew, where he lambasted the Pharisees? Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, you hypocrites, you whitewashed sepulchers. That was Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. Does it sound like he's contradicting his own advice? Well, I would say stop and think a minute who he was talking to. He was talking to people who had every reason to know the truth of God and yet pushed it away, rejected it with both hands and ran from God. They knew better, but they refused to repent. But think of how Jesus was with people who were weak, people who he found as broken bundles laying alongside the road somewhere, all messed up. And how gentle he was, how merciful he was, even though they maybe had made great mistakes. A woman who came and started to tell her story at the well of Samaria, and she thought her story was hidden from Christ, and he started telling her story to her. How many men she'd lived with, and the one she was with now was not her husband. And yet he showed her grace. You know, I grew up in the era when a fundamentalist culture was prevalent. I was in a good church, a positive church, and and I'm not saying this was a product of my congregation, but I was part of that church, and and all of us were part of a larger culture that many of you were, what we would call sort of the, the fundamentalist mindset that had a tendency of looking at people based on behaviors and, and typecasting them and, and consigning them into categories. I would just think of one little example. If, if you were in my church when I grew up and there was any suspicion that you were a person who had a goodly supply of, of hard liquor in your home that you imbibed in or that you spent any amount of time in taverns, oh my goodness, a lot of us would have decided that either you couldn't possibly be a Christian now or maybe you never would be one. Well, that's a condemnation. Is that a behavior that God is drunkenness or alcoholism, a behavior God approves of? Of course not. But can a Christian have a a wide spirit, a large and generous, merciful spirit towards someone who struggles with that in their life? I would hope so. Otherwise, today we're going to turn to anything that we think would be against the will of God. Someone coming out of drug use, someone who's been in prison, someone who's had an abortion, someone who's had a divorce, someone who's struggling with sexual sin, and we're going to typecast every one of those people. And the worst thing about that is what it does to us. May God forgive us when we are refusing to approach other people made in God's image with anything less than the same grace that we have so freely received from our Savior. I, you know, as I studied this passage, I looked at it, and, and you have to ask yourself in the unity of this short passage, what 39 and 40 are doing there? Because it doesn't quite sound like it has to do with the rest of the passage, but I think it must. Where Jesus is talking about leaders there, one person leading another. And he says, can a blind man lead a blind man? I believe he's holding up leaders to have these characteristics of a large and generous and merciful spirit. After all, you go to spiritual leaders to learn the Word of God, whether it's me from the pulpit or someone teaching you the Word or someone modeling the Christian life, you are going to imitate those who are your spiritual leaders. And as this passage says, a student does not rise above his teacher. He becomes what his teacher is, basically. 
Now, if I was a pastor who was known for having impeccable, wonderful, Calvinistic doctrine in every regard, and someone said, oh, he has his doctrine all down, and yet I lived a harsh, unmerciful, uncharitable life towards people, and I was known for that spirit, I would certainly be the blind leading the blind. For my good doctrine wouldn't do anyone any good if it was in that kind of a spirit. You know, elsewhere, this is a bit of a a tangent, but church leaders are called to the hard work of church discipline. When a believer's life is spinning out of control and they're justifying that which is ungodly and harming others in their lives, leaders are called to bring discipline to bear. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean we sit as imperious, arrogant, long-nosed judges slamming someone else? Or does it mean, perhaps, that we have to read Galatians 6.1 very carefully, which says, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him, what's the word? Arrogantly? High-handedly? Legalistically? Judgmentally? The word happens to be gently. And it goes on to say, watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. You see, Christian leaders, teachers, parents who have to carry out necessary discerning judgments in the lives of people they're responsible for need to do that, but they need to do it in the spirit of Christ-like grace. The third place, we will be judged, this passage says, we will be judged by the same spirit that we apply to others. That's throughout this passage. Verse 37, don't condemn, and you won't be condemned. You know, We don't know God's verdict on people we deal with in the church. You might deal very kindly and respectfully towards someone who shares the pew with you in in God's church who nominally is a Christian who in fact has no real saving knowledge of Christ and, and is going to be eternally lost. Whereas you're holding at arm's length today someone who doesn't look like you or act like you and whose actions perhaps are a little bit repulsive to you And that person is very close to the kingdom of God. And the Lord is going to do something wonderful in his life. Do you really think you know the difference between those people? Only God has that kind of knowledge. And in telling us that God will measure out to us the same standard we apply, it's the same dynamic that goes on in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts, Lord, as we forgive our debtors. We're not asking one-on-one, Lord, every time I, I forgive somebody else, will you please forgive me? I've said to this many times before. What that's talking, I think you should picture a cycle going on. God cycling his grace of forgiveness to me, and I'm cycling it out again to another and another. And the cycle goes on. God doesn't give mercy and forgiving grace into our lives to pour it into a stagnant holding tank. He gives it as a river to run right on through us to other people. And the magnanimity of his grace in ways that are hard to explain, gets returned to us over and over. You see how the speck and the plank are here, that famous little parable that that so vividly calls all this to mind. You going, now notice this is talking about a brother, 
And it actually is a legitimate activity to go to a brother, a Christian brother, and advise them of something that might be wrong in their life. It doesn't say here that that's wrong to do. In fact, verse 42 says it is a good thing to do. Just be sure you do something else first. Understand if there's a log hanging out of your eye before you go after the speck. You remember how this was with King David? The wise king, the man after God's own heart. He was a godly man, but he also fell pretty notably sometimes. And David, you remember, had committed adultery with the wife of Uriah and then arranged for Uriah to be killed. And one day then in court, Nathan the prophet came and preached a little message and said, King, I'm going to tell you a little story about a man who had but one lamb in his flock. He didn't even have a flock. He had one lamb. And a rich man came along and stole that man's one lamb and took it for himself. David the king was probably just about foaming at the mouth, saying, I'm the king, let me at that guy. I'll see that he rots in jail forever. And Nathan pointed his finger, as prophets tend to do, and said, O king, you are that man. And the good thing about David was he was able to see the log sticking out of his eye right away. And he repented. Scripture assumes that we may have to help other believers see things wrong in their lives, but we do it after we've hauled the lumber from our own lives and seen our own consciences as God sees them. This cycle of grace, we give grace as God gives it to us, and it comes back to us, and we give it again, and we receive it again. There's a little story from secular history that illustrates the way grace moves on through lives like that. Some say it's a legend. Others insist that it's true. Let me tell you this little story. More than a century ago, there was a Scottish farmer. His last name was Fleming. And Mr. Fleming one day was out working in his fields, and he heard cries of distress coming from a little ways out, and he ran out to where these cries were from, and he saw a young boy sunken in a bog on his farm, and the boy was already up to his chest in in mud and apparently sinking. He could have easily been pulled all the way into this sinkhole and have drowned and died. So the farmer, of course, pulled the boy out, saved his life. The boy thanked him quickly and ran off towards his home, which wasn't so far away. The next day, the story says a nobleman's carriage pulled up at the farmer's house And out stepped the lordly owner of the carriage with the son who had been rescued from the mud. And the nobleman spoke to the farmer and said, Mr. Fleming, I'm here to thank you, sir, for saving my son's life. And I see there your son standing beside you, and I have thought of how I could adequately thank you. I've decided to make you this offer. I will pay for your son to go and receive a university education. I will pay every bill, every penny for him to become an educated man. Well, the farmer accepted the gift to his son, the gift of grace, and that son graduated from the British University and the medical college that followed. And one day that son of the farmer became known to the world as Sir Alexander Fleming the inventor of penicillin. Now, that's not all of the story. Not only did a year, a work of grace by the nobleman for seeing his son saved introduce a gift to the whole world, but 
Years later, the nobleman's son, the one who had been pulled out of the bog, was the man himself, and he came down with pneumonia. And guess how his life was saved a second time? By the administration of penicillin from Alexander Fleming's research. Oh, by the way, the second son, the one who was saved from the bog and from pneumonia, he was slightly famous too. His name was Sir Winston Churchill. Grace goes around, and it comes around. And God does marvelous things when his people freely dispense the grace that we see modeled so wonderfully in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we approach people who are broken or hurting or or in great need, not with our judgmentalism, not with our condemnation, but with our open arms and our encouragement and our prayers. In the end, the Lord works mighty things as his redeemed people transmit the grace of Christ to sinful men and women, even though we might hate and condemn whatever activity it is they are caught up in. I say to you, there is just one biblical way for you to see other people. And if you get the log out of your eye, you will see them this way. No matter how damaged or weak or unattractive they might currently be, the one biblical way to see other people is through the eyes of Jesus and his generous mercy and abundant grace. He saw you that way. And because of it, he died for you. Our Father, we pray that you'd help the logs to drop. We have so many standards that we hold people up to, so many categories in which we place them. Categories that say, I will not deal with that person. I could not abide a person like that. That person could not be changed by God. Forgive us for daring to think that we are you, the all-knowing judge. Forgive us and humble us so that we might act towards others caught in the net and the chaos and the confusion and the brokenness of sin with the mercy that was shown to us when Jesus went to a cross. Remake us in this way day by day, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.